We are in Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20 today. It's Nehemiah's question and inspection. We're going to see last week, perhaps you remember, uh, Nehemiah gets some really bad news from his brother Hanani. He says, the gates burn with fire, it's destroyed. Not that the city is destroyed, but there's no walls around Jerusalem. And so it's a dangerous place. And we're not sure if he's referring to when Nebuchadnezzar did it a hundred and something years beforehand or when Ezra tried to build it and it was shut down. We just don't know exactly, but we do know this. Nehemiah committed himself to praying and uh, fasting. And what we looked at last week was five sanctifying practices of a believer. That wasn't all of them. There's many more, but that's just a few of them that we saw showcased in the life of Nehemiah. Today, we're going to see Nehemiah finally has the opportunity to deal with the matter at hand. By the way, you might hear me cough quite a bit today. I haven't taken up smoking, but... (laughs) I do have uh, some nasty allergies, so uh, something to that effect. So, continuing on, Nehemiah finally has an opportunity to ask the question, and he's going to ask a Persian king if he can go back to his ancestral land and begin the process of rebuilding the walls. Y'all need to just see that right off the bat. That's not something you do. You don't just sashay into the king's presence and ask him something, especially because we're going to see Nehemiah's face is sad in the mix of that. That's just over the top, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Our outline today, a good working outline will be for you, is chapter 2, verse 1 through 8, we'll see Nehemiah's prayer. Verse 9 through 16, Nehemiah's inspection of the Jerusalem walls. And then verses 17 through 20, Nehemiah encourages the Jews and he shuts down his enemies. This is the word of God. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. If you're wondering the time frame here regarding the seasons. This is roughly March, April. Four months beforehand, he had received word about the Jerusalem walls. Um, And so what we see is Nehemiah waits, and he waits four months. I think I said this last time. Uh, He's going to pray. He's going to mourn and fast. He does it for four months? Well, we don't know all the details. Perhaps the king was away uh, Nehemiah may be one of several cupbearers, so maybe he didn't get to be in his presence that often. It just wasn't the right timing. And so what Nehemiah practices is the same thing that we are, we are called to practice, and you don't like it. It's called patience. Patience, for me, it's much more to script coming from the Greek in the Hebrew. The Greek, it's called makrothymia, Macro meaning large or long. Thymia meaning suffering. Isn't that much more to script when we wait with patience? We're supposed to suffer long. We have a long-suffering God. This is one of the fruit of the Spirit that is 
oftentimes sorely lacking in my life. Not saying the others are not sorely lacking as well. But patience, I'm not a patient man. And I have to really work on that. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for patience is this word, uh, two words, erek apayim. And that's even perhaps more descript. It means long of nose. When we think somebody is long of nose, you think Pinocchio. This person's, a, this person's a liar. No, it's just the opposite in Hebrew. A person is long of nose, has great patience. I'll explain that in a moment. But suffice it to say, remember when Moses tells the Lord, I want to I see your face. And God says, no one has ever seen my face. I'll put you in the crevice over here and then I'll cover you and then I will walk. And what God says to him, he says this, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you know what happens. Moses comes back, his face is shining and he got to see something that None of no one else got to see, but what God said is what's so interesting. Because if we were to read it the way Moses would understand it, it would be this The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, long of nose, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And now at this point, you can't stand it. What is the nose thing? <clears throat> well, I'll tell you. Note the next time you get angry. Look in the mirror if you can, because you'll see the first thing that gets red and flushed is right here. And not only that, you've seen it in others where their nostrils kind of flare. <laughs> We're all that way. God made us that way. And so that's what it means to be long of nose. It takes a long while for the Lord to be angry. I'm not saying that God is, dis is not displeased with our sin. He doesn't wink at our sin. No. But he is a God who is a God of love. And so he is slow to anger. He is long of nose. 1 Corinthians 13, many times people will read this in their weddings, and it will describe love. Do you remember the first attribute of love? Love is, love is patient. Love is long-suffering. Love is long of nose. That's why when I... If you're one of those couples out here today that you're just thinking, I'm just so sick of this. I'm so sick of this. I've waited so long for this person to change. I can't handle it anymore. I want to get out. Be careful. First attribute of love is patience, long-suffering. So you're going to suffer a long time with that person. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 7, 28, let me save you some trouble. Don't get married. Now, just to be clear, I love my wife, and we enjoy marriage together, right? Okay. <laughs> but the fact of the matter, anybody will tell you, being single might be easier. It's not as much fun as being married. But the reason why marriage is hard is you're putting two sinners together. What did you expect? And God is long-suffering. But I would tell you this. Listen, it's not just uh, in marriage or work that we have to suffer long. We have to work on our patience in all areas. God calls us to be patient people. And not only patient, but we're also supposed to be long-suffering. Stay with me. It's towards him, 
Not that he does us wrong in any way, but he knows the plans he has for us, not us. All God's saints wait. Let me give you some examples. You think four months is a long time. Abraham waits 25 years for a son. Joseph waits 17 years to see his father again. Moses waits 40 years in the desert tending sheep. David waits 10 years running from Saul. The apostle Paul waits three years in Arabia. God just pulled him aside and had a time with him. So summit, Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. How are you doing today with that? This is too convicting. So he says this, he says, um, he had not been sad in his presence. In the Hebrew, he says, I, was, I had not been bad in his presence. It's this Hebrew word, ra. And um, we actually use it in the same way. When somebody comes to you and say, hey, I've got some bad news, what do we take that as? We take that as sad. It's sad news. And so they do this in Hebrew as well. Keep, keep in mind the cupbearer is a happy role for the king. Psalm 104 says, wine gladdens the heart of man, especially pagan kings that are given to great drunkenness. And so you would expect the cupbearer to always be, have, have a smile on his face and happy. Remember, he's the guy that just drank or ate the food that he's about to give you. It's a bad thing to not be happy before the king. And so he says, the king says, are you sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Why is Nehemiah so afraid? Two reasons. Number one, it was forbidden to be sad in the king's presence. And that might be in particular of the Persian throne. You could not be sad in his presence. And you know what I'm thinking of when I consider Esther. When Mordecai puts on sackcloth, it says that he walks you know, around uh, close to the capital, but he does not walk towards the king's gate. He won't go near the king's gate. Why? Because the king will look and go, why is that man sad? Execute him. Uh, Persian works of art from Persepolis show king's servants placing their right hand over their mouth so as not to defile the king with their breath. So this is, Persian kings could be very moody. Don't mess with these guys. And secondly, Nehemiah is about to, the reason why he's so scared, he's about to ask the king to change his policy towards rebuilding Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter four, there was a policy that said no more rebuilding in Jerusalem and he's gonna ask the king to change it. Let's see what happens. Verse three and four. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I pray to the God of heaven. So he tells the king, there's a place in my father's tombs. They lie desolate. His gates are eaten with fire. We actually don't know if Nehemiah has ever been to Jerusalem. Keep in mind that Nehemiah is raised in Babylon. His father was raised in Babylon. His grandfather probably raised in Babylon. It's been a couple of hundred years since uh, Judah had been taken, but he has a kindred spirit to this place called worship. That is the place of God's um, special presence among his people. And not only that, but his father's tombs were lying desolate. It's horrible. Note, he doesn't name the city. I think that's interesting. He doesn't say Jerusalem. Maybe because the king already knew Jerusalem, or maybe he's being 
what? Why is a serpent innocent as doves? And Nehemiah goes, I'm not going to say the name. If he asks me, I'll say it. But for right now, all he needs to know is my father's tombs are in ruins. And he's asking him to change the policy. So he says, what are you requesting? So Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven. Now, some of us that don't have a very good prayer life, you should take great heart in this. God does not look at Nehemiah right there and said, oh, no bullet prayers. I don't listen to those. He doesn't say that. And just to be clear, Nehemiah is known as a praying man. You'll see him in chapter 4, chapter 9, chapter 6. Oh, there's just a whole lot of verses here that talks about Nehemiah praying. But this one is a bullet prayer. He's got one shot, and he knows he's got one shot. It reminds me of Peter sinking in the Sea of Galilee. He looks at Jesus, and he sees Jesus coming, and he goes, hey, if if it's really you, Lord, tell me to come on out, and I'll, I'll walk on water. And so Jesus says, come. Peter gets out of the boat, and can you imagine what this would feel like? As he's walking, he begins to see what? The wind, the waves, and then he begins to sink And Peter doesn't go, I should give a long request here to make this right. I should confess for my lack of prayer. It is good to confess, just to be clear. He just cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabs him right immediately, it says in Mark, you have little faith. Why don't you just believe? It was almost like he was saying, you were doing so well. Like these little kids that can not walk very well, you were doing so well. And he doesn't rebuke him. So it's much more than just that. So be encouraged. We need to be about people of praying. If you don't have qualified set-aside times for prayer, that's it's okay. I would encourage it. But the Lord hears. Amen? Isaiah 65, verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And some people would say, why do I need to pray if he already hears me? Because I think part of the reason we pray is for us to remind us how inadequate we are apart from him. So here's his question, verse five and six. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Some of the Older commentators may have thought that perhaps this is Queen Esther. Remember, Artaxerxes' father is Xerxes, who married Esther. It may have been. I don't think so. The reason why is sometimes you would have your wife as the queen sitting beside you. Sometimes you would have your mother as the queen mother sitting beside you. Uh, Artaxerxes is not Esther's child um, by blood, so maybe he had his mom or his, his wife. It's interesting that the term in Hebrew is not the usual term for queen. It may be, in fact, describing the chief member of his royal harem. Maybe Nehemiah had a good relationship with both of them, and he was like, now I'm going to speak, and he does. So the king asked him some definite questions. How long will your journey be? When will you return? And note what Nehemiah does or does not do. He doesn't say, man, I just prayed about this. I don't know. You have to give me some time. 
No, he gives them a definite time. What is that showing us, believer? It's showing us that not only does Nehemiah pray, but he plans. He's planned the trip in his mind. He's been very diligent. Proverbs 13, 4 says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat, meaning, meaning, meaning successful, if you will. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan, writes this, the promises of God straighten us. They do not slacken us. What, what he's saying is this, just because I think, just because I know God is sovereign, does that mean I just don't plan? I hope it doesn't mean that. The Bible talks about the importance of diligence. When you consider Augustine, who would say this, pray as though everything depended on God, work as though everything depended on you. I like that. Because ultimately, it, yes, depends upon the Lord, but we should be good stewards of the time God has given us. It says in Ephesians, do not squander time. Be careful. It's so easy to squander time. Adam did a great job in the Sunday school this morning talking about that. It's very easy to fall into. Just a few moments turning into minutes, a few minutes turn into hours that turn into days, weeks, months, years. We're squandering our time, folks. Be careful. Verse 7 and 8, I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. A letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. The king granted them to me. Why? Because the good hand of my God was on me. Note, Nehemiah is not saying, I had such a solid prayer life, and then I came up with those really great plans. No. He's saying, the reason why I have any success whatsoever is the good hand of God was upon me. I really hate to say what I'm about to say, but I feel obligated to do so. I have to give credit to the University of Oklahoma. <laughs> George will appreciate this. The softball team won the World Series yet again. Yeah, there you go. And what's fascinating, though, is that I, this is a team I can cheer for. Uh, Coach Gasso has done such a great job. She's a believer. And her discipleship of these young women on the team, I think, has been amazing. I want to challenge you to do something. A challenge is not the right word. Give you a little homework, but please don't do it now in the service. Look up YouTube. Uh, the OU softball players, uh, the ESPN reporter asked, said, how do y'all keep your joy in the midst of this? You know, a long season, you've won so much, and how do you keep the joy? And I'm not kidding. Some of you that have seen and know what I speak of, one, two, all three of these ladies were so sharp with their answers. They just basically said, in essence, Jesus Christ. I mean, it blew me away. I was cheering Boomer sooner. I mean, what, what's going on? So why do I share that? Because they said what it comes down to was not our great practice. It was not great, even great coaching, although I'm sure that was the case. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus Christ. And this is what Nehemiah is saying, is that the only reason I was able to go is because the good hand of God was on me. He, he does not allow in any sense 
God will not share his glory with another, and Nehemiah is not going to pat himself on the back one bit. So he gives him this, uh, he gives him these letters. These are safety letters. If they, they'd be used for a passport. Uh, he can get lumber from Asaph. He's keeper of the king's forest. We don't know where that is, but it could have been in Lebanon, modern day, or it could be somewhere in Israel. He also wants to make beams for the fortress. And it seems that there was some sort of uh, fortress by the temple. Uh, as a matter of fact, they have something called the Antonia Fortress that the Herod the Great would use. Perhaps it was the same one um, as a way to uh, make sure that nothing went wrong in the temple. That's a lot of times where outbreaks would occur between Jews and Gentiles. It's spoken of in Acts 21. And not only that, it seems like he has a family house to go to in Jerusalem to perhaps repair. But what is most interesting about verse 7 and 8 it makes it very clear that Nehemiah accepts the king's escort, meaning the horses, the guards, for the trip. Who didn't accept it in the last book? Ezra. So Ezra says no to the king's guard, and Nehemiah says yes. Ezra says no, perhaps as an issue of faith, to say, I want to show the king we're trusting God alone. Nehemiah says, yes, perhaps as a way to show wisdom. It's probably smart to have some guards around us. Which one was right? Well, I would say this. I think we're dealing with a word that I want you to know because I'm very thankful for this word. I'm more thankful for the concept in Romans 14. It's, uh, the, it's the Greek word adiaphora. It won't be on the test. But adiaphora, it means indifferent, neither right nor wrong, but spiritually neutral. We would say, which one is right? We would say, both were right. And for you people that don't like that, you're like, "Uh uh-uh, there has to be just one way. I would say you're not holding to Scripture sometimes. Romans 14 speaks about this. Romans 14, here's what was going on. There were certain members of the church that would had no problem uh, eating food sacrificed to idols, and the reason why they had no problem with it is because the way it worked at that time, you didn't, you have these meat you would put in front of the idol, and once the, uh, once the time of idolatry was over, you'd remove it and you'd hang it in the market square. A lot of times the food sacrificed to idols was the best meat. And since they didn't have refrigeration, you had to buy it and you had to make it that day. Uh, certain members of the church had no problems with it because they agreed with what Paul said that, hey, it doesn't. Idols are nothing. Now, what is behind the idols can be something, demons, but the idol is nothing. Whereas there are certain people in the congregation that used to sacrifice to idols that said, I can't do that. And Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, says, which one is right? And he says, both are right. Uh, I've put it up there, I think. But Luke 14, I'll go ahead and show it to you what's happening here. Uh, Luke 14, verse 3 and 4, it says, Let not the one who eats, that means that certain group that had no problem eating food sacrificed to idols, don't let them despise the one who abstains. They despise them. That means they hate certain people in the congregation that are a little bit more legalistic than them. Whereas you have another group that says... Uh, Sorry, I lost my place. Here we go. And let not the one who abstains, that means the one who said, I can't eat food sacrificed to idols, don't let them pass judgment on the one who eats. 
That means these people that were more prone to be a little bit more rigid, perhaps, don't let them pass judgment on these. So you see the two different sides. The people that were a little bit more relaxed, perhaps in their convictions, they're going to have a tendency to hate these people. Why? Probably because these people over here are judging them. Have you ever dealt with this in the Christian life before? I think I'm talking to a congregation that has because we all have dealt with it. And yet the Bible tells us in verse uh, verse three, don't let this happen for God has welcomed him. Verse four, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Romans 14, 12, it says a little bit later, each of us will give account of ourselves before God. Now your eyes are beginning to glaze because you realize we don't food sacrifice to idols. That's a big deal in places like India and other parts of the world. In America, not so much. One of our issues could be something like alcohol. Look at a congregation like this. Uh, There's certain views on alcohol, first off, that are biblically wrong. It's always wrong to drink in excess. I think we would agree on that. But there's two differing views, and that is I could drink the right age, obviously, in moderation, or I can drink not at all. Which one is the biblical view? They're both. They're both. And so each side is not supposed to win the other side over. You go with your convictions. Um, There's views about courting versus dating. Which one is right? Well, some of you are like, wait, hold on a second. I've got some views on here. I'm not saying you don't have your convictions and stay with your convictions is what I'm encouraging you to do. But be careful. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, learn by us not to go beyond what is written so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. What is he saying? The Corinthians were guilty of going outside of scripture, having sort of extra biblical Um, beliefs that, no, this is what the Bible says. And Paul's saying, no. Because when you do stuff like that, what happens to your head? It gets big, and you start to get very prideful. So hold to your convictions, but and you can dialogue with others, but at the end of the day, we have to be about love. I could even go into another topic like schooling. Oh, now I hit you, didn't I? Homeschool, private school, Christian school, boarding school, public school. I'm so thankful that we have in this congregation, I think all of those. I think that's a good thing. And some of you that that are very strong in your convictions will go, no, no, that's not a good thing, and here's why. And I would tell you this. You just need to make sure what does the Bible say. If you have your kid at a particular school or whatever else, make sure that you're following Deuteronomy 6 that you're speaking about the Lord when you're lying down and when you're sitting up, when you're walking down the road? Does your child hear you say these things? Does he only think he gets it at church? Are you following Ephesians 6? I hope you're not provoking your child to anger, but raising him up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And realize that you can provoke your child to anger in many ways. Over-discipline, not disciplining. There's a, I'm so glad the Bible doesn't tell you exactly how. Because it's done, we need to be careful. But are you fulfilling those things? And if you are, then great. Go with the school that you believe the Lord is calling you to. I'm sure I'm gonna get emails on this, but (laughs) point is this, I really think as believers, 
Don't run from your convictions. Stick with them. I've got my convictions about schooling and about these other issues as well. But make sure I always want to go with what the Bible says specifically about these things. Savvy? Okay. Third return. We're going to move in now. Um, lock the doors. Let's keep going. First return, we had 50,000 go with Zerubbabel. And then the second return with Ezra, we've got 5,000. And now Nehemiah, we just don't have any idea. We got some idea, but not exactly sure. So let's take a look. He's inspecting the walls, verse 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and the horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to speak to rather seek the welfare of the people of Israel. You will note this, ladies and gentlemen, Satanic opposition always begins when you decide to help God's people or when you decide to witness to unbelievers. There's other times, but those are the big ones um, that Satan tries to shut us down. Of course, we could also mention prayer as well. He runs into a couple of guys named Sanballat. That name is Babylonian. And he seems to have been governor of Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem, Next, we have Tobiah the Ammonite. Even though he's called an Ammonite, he in fact might be a Jew because his name is Jewish, meaning Yahweh is God. But he probably had a position over the ancient land of the Ammonites. So we have people in the north and people in the east that are against him. Let's see what he does now. So I went to Jerusalem, verse 11, and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one in which I rode. Question, why isn't Nehemiah telling everyone about what he's doing? Well, I think there's wisdom here. Two reasons. If the Jews' enemies heard about his inspection, they may stir up the people against him. And number two, Nehemiah can formulate a plan before Jews come up with reasons as to why rebuilding the wall is not going to happen. He can get, he can get the uh, boots on the ground, if you will. He can see what's happening. Verse 13, I went out by night by the valley gate, which seems to be in the southwest of the city, to the dragon gate and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Now, as far as we know, Nehemiah only goes to the southern part of the city. These gates are kind of fairly well known in the southern part. Why doesn't he go to the northern part of the city? Jerusalem was always attacked from the north. It's, it's, Jerusalem is surrounded by valleys in the south, east, uh, west, but the north is where they most time come. Uh, it's most vulnerable. Maybe there wasn't any wall at all there. So he has nothing to inspect. But he's checking these gates. We don't know exactly where they are. This dragon spring is also called the well of the serpents, well of the jackals. The, the dung gate, we know where that was. That was in the far south, lowest part of Jerusalem, leading to the valley of Hinnom. Let's take a look, verse 14 through 16. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. When I, when I say there was no room, it was either too steep or there was too much rubble 
the, he couldn't get by. Then I went up in the valley by the, uh, rather went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. I turned back and entered by the valley gate. So he returned and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Once again, beg the question, why isn't he telling people? Nehemiah is taking the route of Jesus, I think, in this passage. We see in John 2, 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew what was in man. Can I tell you what I'm guilty of and I'm sure you are too? Entrusting yourself to people. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't love people. We should, yes. But be careful that we are not seeking our favor, our acceptance, and people. Nehemiah knew the Lord has called him to this and he said, I'm gonna wait before I talk to them. He's gonna check it all out because he's not gonna entrust himself to their view yet because they probably would have shut him down as we'll see. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. I just really think it's helpful the way he talks to the people. He does not condemn the Jews for not rebuilding the wall. If I were Nehemiah, I'd be like, what are y'all doing? You need to get moving on this thing. But he doesn't. He, 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 he's so interesting, he encourages them. He loves people. There's an old uh, Peanuts article of Lucy and Linus. Some of y'all don't even know about these characters anymore, but <laughs> anyway, Lucy, uh, Linus has just told her he wants to be a doctor, and Lucy, as she often does, mocks him. You, a doctor? Ha! That's a big laugh. You can never be a doctor. You know why? Because you don't love mankind. That's why. And Linus answers her, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> I've heard it said before, if you really love God, then you naturally love people. I myself have said that in the past. I just don't think it's true. I think it should be true. You've met them before, right? The folks that have a love for God's word and they seem to love God, but they don't like to be around people. That's a problem. And the opposite would be a problem as well. You love people, but you don't want to be with the Lord. It's... I think in my studies of scripture, what I find out is the great commandment is really two separate commandments, isn't it? Has that ever bothered you? That's bothered me before. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You should love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than this. That sounds like two commands to me. Well, I, th I think what Christ is getting to is that really they're not supposed to be separate. They're supposed to be together. Birds don't fly on one wing. They fly on two. You need them both. And Nehemiah is showcasing that by God's grace alone. He's loving the Lord and he's also loving people as he leads them. He tells them, you see the bad situation that y'all are in? No, he doesn't say that. He says, you, need the, you see the bad situation we are in? You see, sometimes it's not what you say, it's 
how you say it. He's not manipulating here. He's just saying, hey, I'm with y'all. I'm speaking the truth and love, Ephesians 4.15. You see, we're in a bad spot here. And he's very clear, Jerusalem is desolate, his gates are burned by fire. He's being encouraging, but he's being honest about the situation. And then he says, come let who? Let us, us, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. The word reproach there, it seems to be coming from the punishment from exile. When the nations look at Israel or Judah at that time, they're gonna still see burned up walls and they're like, Obviously, God is not happy with you at all, and they will be a reproach. And he says, we need to show um, the world God's kingdom. Let's, let's do this right. And the reproach is on God's name, and so we want to fix that. Verse 18 through 20, and I told them the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build so they strengthened the hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So we see that Nehemiah just continues what's been going on. Zerubbabel and Ezra made it very clear to the peoples of the land, you're not part of this. You cannot be a part of this. And uh, so Nehemiah is going to continue with that. We also see another enemy. Did you catch him? Not just Sanballat, not just Tobiah, but a guy named Geshem the Arab. Just to be clear, Sanballat is in the north. Uh, We've got um, Tobiah. Tobiah is on the east. Geshem the Arab is on the south. And at this point, you're wondering, what about to the west? Well, to the west is the Mediterranean Sea, pretty much. So they're pretty much surrounded. And notice what automatically they're doing. They're spreading lies. Remember, Satan is the father of lies. That's his first tongue. So that's the first thing the enemies of God go to when they're attacking God's people. It's called lies. And so I think it's interesting to note as we kind of close our time here is they mocked us and despised us and they're lying. But what does Nehemiah say? The God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will arise and build. It's almost like he looks at each of them and says, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. And with Nehemiah, it looks a whole lot like our future Messiah, Jesus Christ. And just the different ways he deals with people. He deals with, Nehemiah deals with authority here, uh, with King Artaxerxes. He also deals with his friends, and he deals with his enemies. How does he deal with them? I think it's really a foreshadowing of how Jesus Christ dealt with his quote-unquote authority, like Pilate where he looked at him and says, you have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. It's almost like Jesus is just making a statement here. It's just, just to be clear, you don't have any authority. And, and, and if that's not true of Pilate, that's, that's also true of all authority ever. Only authority that people have been given has been given from God. 
And Jesus knows how to deal with it. Notice how Nehemiah dealt kindly with his friends, tenderly. So Jesus kindly, tenderly deals with his brothers and sisters. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And then finally, how does Jesus deal with his enemies? When the high priest forces his hand, if you will, and he says, I adjure you by the living God in Matthew 26, tell us if you are Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. Much in the same way that Nehemiah says, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. What about some applications for us as we close up shop? Well, I would say it's important for us to realize that waiting patiently is just part of the curriculum. It just is. I don't like it any more than you do. But the Bible tells us in Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. It's interesting that that Hebrew word for wait it's not long of nose, that's patience. But waiting, it, it can be translated just as easily as hope. Because some of you said in your mind, Jeff just misquoted that. It's those who hope in the Lord. No, it's actually, it's, it's both. Because the word means to look eagerly. And so sometimes the commentators, the interpreters think it means wait. And other times they think it means hope. But in the Hebrew, it's really fused together. Bible tells us to hope in the Lord, and as we hope, we are also doing what? We're waiting. Number two, suffering accompanies work for the Lord. Always does. Always. Count on it. 1 Peter 4.19 tells us how to cope with that. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Here you go, Lord. And you told me suffering was coming. I didn't expect this as we never do, but it accompanies suffering. It rather accompanies work for the Lord. And number three, maybe perhaps the most encouraging, the work of the Lord is driven by the love of God. It's driven. We don't have to kind of crank it up in ourselves like, come on, come on. It's driven by the love of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer do what? Live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. At the end of the day, as we work for the Lord, we realize that because the good hand of God is upon me, I have a desire to work for the Lord and I have the strength to work for the Lord. It's all him. You can't share the glory. It's all his. There's a guy named Samuel Trevor Francis who wrote one of my favorite songs. Moy will learn it. I'm not commanding that. He told me he would. So he does such a good job. It's, this guy was a 19th century British teenager. He wanted to commit suicide. He was contemplating suicide over the River Thames where other people had committed suicide before his time, and yet the Lord saved him. Don't know how. If you have the information on that, let me know. But he wrote uh, this called, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. 
And, it, and you, the, the picture that goes through your head would be like a person that's surrounded by a flood of water, of ocean. That's the love of Jesus in our lives. And he writes this, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. If you have not come to know Jesus as your Savior, you have not entered that rest yet. And yet Jesus will call you today, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart. You will find rest for your souls. Come to him today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace in our lives. Without it, we would be in hell for eternity. But by your grace, you saved us. You chose us before the foundation of the world. The son paid for the price. Spirit drew us to himself at his time and his way. So Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would be about doing the work because we know that the love of God is the one that's controlling us all the way. In his name we pray it, amen.